Alright, hello and welcome to another episode of When a Man Loves a Raymond, and Everybody Loves Raymond recap podcast. I'm uh, I'm Matt, I'm with my co-host Kevin. Hey guys. There he is, and uh, we're going to do one, uh, one episode from Raymond's first season tonight, and it is uh, the 21st, the penultimate episode second to last this season ray ray is of drinking age not that he's going to make use of that as uh we actually do it's weird that the episode does open in a bar it does open at the bar i was it was it was quite a swerve yeah the um the episode is called fascinate in deborah and i there's no g on fascinating I, i like the way you emphasize that it's one of those things i feel like if i didn't say it i would be embarrassed by how it came out have to we already host an Everybody Loves Raymond's critique podcast. I think embarrassment is not a factor anymore. Yeah, I mean, you do what you can to protect what shreds of your reputation remain. And uh, if I want to spend a minute and a half talking about why I overpronounced fascinating, you know, at least give me that in my hour of indignity. We have a lot of dirty rats and weasels who are trying to take <laughs> us down. Yeah, we uh we've made a lot of enemies over the course of the 13 episodes now of this podcast. Yeah. Unbelievable. People don't like us. A lot of jealous trolls out there. Nasty people. Yeah. This is the world that we've entered, the world of uh 90s sitcom recaps. Ours like as a uh, I think I think the real distinction of ours is that we don't include the descriptor beloved when we intro things, which is like pro forma everywhere else that is true i mean but we said at the beginning we set out we want it to be like the bad boys we want to deconstruct this whole stale and uh turgid genre yeah which i think maybe in the like the, the first two episodes of the podcast we actually spent some time trying to like um understand the cultural position of raymond and like get into that aspect of the show we've completely abandoned that and now we're just in like a toilet-like maelstrom of raymond that we can't escape (laughs) there's a a, the is it centripetal or a centrifugal force at the bottom of the toilet pulling us into the vortex i know one of them is like it pushes out and one pulls in i can't remember which is which though but then when i like that that makes enough sense to me and then when i actually start to think about what's going on i can't distinguish between the two directions it seems like they would all be doing both to me yeah i I think a lot about what goes on in the toilet (laughs) are you uh one of those people that gets up off the seat and then stands and looks down flushes it (laughs) watching closely to see what happens i bring a camera with like um like a very high um I focus lens like the pig, like Aiden's law <laughs> photographer lens into like the public restroom with me. I thought you were gonna say you bring in like a like thermal goggles to, to see. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like splinter cell. Yeah, exactly. I do. I crawl. Under, um, I crawl up the walls into the toilet. I don't, I don't. I'm not gonna open those filthy stall doors. That's uh. That's what was really going on in the first scene of Goldeneye. <laughs> Yeah, he was just trying to use the bathroom. The um, I, I feel like we should maybe mention that the, all this uh, is coming on the heels of a 
pre-recording conversation about maybe leaving the the shit humor aside for tonight <laughs> oh yeah but i mean i i really didn't mean it to be humorous i was i was trying to draw awareness to um an ailment that our friend steely ray suffers from which is uh shitting his pants constantly so it's one of those things where you want to bring awareness to it because we are so painfully aware of it those in, in proximity to him right you know awareness is at maximum levels and we could really use uh an outlet to distribute some of that awareness and and like you say awareness like we're being empathetic and supportive friends but it's more aware because he's shit his pants in front of us many times and we have to <laughs> smell it and like it sprays out Ugh. yeah for us awareness is synonymous with um like humiliation we want we just want people to know about it <laughs> you need to know about <laughs> steely ray next time he comes on which uh we think will be for our uh, finale extravaganza just k- yeah, keep in mind which, when he uh, talks, he's probably shitting himself. Yeah, we have the noise gate really high to keep some of the background noises out <laughs> on his mic. Um, anyway, so we're talking about episode 21. It's called Fascinating Deborah, um, which we'll talk, let's talk about the title later. We always front load with this, you know, meaningless drivel about titles. Yes. Um, it opens, um, I think you could say with some confidence – in Manhattan at night. Yeah. Um, you get like a kind of like, you know, New York City B-roll, taxis, intersections, whatever. Um, and then when we cut in, Ray is at a bar receiving a drink um, because he's there uh, to do an interview, right? He's meeting an athlete. He, he's meeting an athlete. Um, I didn't think to look to see what the drink was. Okay, I I rolled this scene back a few times to analyze it. Was it ginger ale? So at first, I thought it was water because it, it's very close to clear. Um, it's in like a highball glass, ice cubes, the whole works. Um, which, I mean, that's funny enough in its own right that like Ray would go out to the bar and order a water. But then I noticed when, when the guest star comes in eventually and we get a shot of Ray's drink from a slightly different angle... There's very clearly a cherry in the drink. Oh. And the cherry once you once I had that to like sort of judge the rest against, I could see that the the liquid was not clear. It was there was a tannish kind of beigeish tint to it and I am willing to to say that I think it was a Shirley Temple or a ginger ale with a cherry, which is I mean it could it could be like you you think it could be a highball? I know they're served with cherries sometimes. No, I think it's either a seven up with a cherry or like you know, like fountain like a ginger ale from a soda fountain is like a little different oh, yeah, than the guy a, like yeah, he sprays it with the little gun thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's um that's my analysis. I would say probably a ginger ale. But it's definitely like a soda. It's not anything classier than that it would have been great if ray ordered like a like a fucking like boiler maker or like a jaeger bomb or some shit <laughs> that would really brought the show I mean, to the next level i was gonna say like you know of course like he wouldn't do that but i was like there's really no rules we yeah. found out for what characters will and won't yeah do. The, the writers don't care no so um the guest for today for this cold open was uh desmond howard right who's uh, he's on the packers right I, I think so, yeah. I, I didn't um, recognize his name right away or his visage. 
Well, he he was the Super Bowl MVP, I think, or the season MVP um, that year. So he was like big at the time. Yeah, so I, this is what like ninety five, ninety six. It's not no, it's ninety seven. Ninety seven, that's right. It's ninety. It's like April of ninety seven, April or May, and uh, so the Super Bowl has occurred in that that year. I'm pretty sure he was the MVP of the game. Oh, it's uh, not Brett Favre. Well, that's I could be wrong. Like I'm, this is all very uh, just supposition. Huh. Um, it's not like per- total memory. I looked this up. I just don't remember what I found because I didn't write it down. <laughs> but um, weirdly enough, like when he enters the scene, there was no studio audience cheer. Yeah, <laughs> there was. A, he didn't get a. He didn't get a little fanfare. And they even the, they make a point to like say his full name out loud too, because because when he walks in, he's like Ray Barone, and Ray's like. Desmond Howard, like that's the way, that's the way people like right. greet each other in like James Bond movies. These people don't greet each other like that in real life when they know who each other is. Yeah, it was um, it was a very stilted and like staged greeting because I I do think they probably felt like they needed to um, tell the audience who they were seeing in, yeah. in this case. Maybe more maybe more than in any previous instance, except maybe like the. Katarina Viet one. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. One, but maybe she had a lot more cachet at the time. I don't know. They also said her full name in a similar sort of explanatory way. I feel like way. figure skating did have like a real moment in 1997, on the heels of those uh, the Olympics that previous time around. The six, 96 yeah. Olympics. Well, well, no, but it would be in the Winter Olympics, so 98 would have been the year, which is kind of weird. It's an off year for the Winter Olympics. Yeah, that's true. But I, I, I remember, like, Tara Lipinski and, um, oh, uh, was it Michelle, Michelle Juan? Kwan. Yes, Michelle Kwan, yeah. I remember them being, like, almost household names. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think um, maybe that just, met, like, kind of speaks to how how much of a moment it was having at the time, that it was it was not a Winter Olympics year. It was, like, totally off the schedule, and yet we, we know all those names. Mm. It could It could be something like that. Um, so anyway, the Desmond Howard gets, uh, introduced and we, the scene is like about Ray not having like mojo when he hands in assignments. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just like Ray being stiff in general. It's, it's another one of these like stupid scenes they just like tack on to the beginning of these episodes that it's, it's not germane to what happens in the rest of the episode at all and it hit and one of the worst aspects of the show which is really saying something is when it relies on ray's physical comedy for a scene which is what this is all about yeah this one really pushes ray um into some really uncomfortable places uh, partially because that's the nature of the joke but um it it's he 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 goes through with these bits and gags in such a like frightened way that it just produces so much anxiety and like I don't know I just I'm always repulsed by them repelled by them rather than like you you don't say like oh right that's how I would be around a big athlete like this you feel like oh god please be a little more normal yeah and it's and it's in a way that's like. It's like beyond his comedic persona too. Yeah, it's not like he's being awkward just because that's what the character calls for. 
it's no you can tell that ray romano is struggling to play the scene because the actor is so awkward right exactly and i your your feelings of revulsion are shared by me figured um so anyway like the the deal is that like i guess desmond howard context clues here uh must have had some kind of reputation for like the big end zone dances and shit because um you know ray makes a joke about how his boss wasn't too thrilled with the assignment with the the article he turned in and desmond howard's like well how did you turn it in and then they get into a conversation about how he you know kind of um when he gets to the end zone he does a little this a little that and um I, I thought it was funny the way Ray immediately responds, that's showboating. Like, in a sort of, like, that's what my dad calls it way. Yeah, no, it's it's true. I have to say, like, I, I watch sports. I, I don't like what would be termed showboating. I've even used the word showboating. But I realize yeah. it's very arcane and old-fashioned. But you also are the person who would think, like, putting, like, a sauce on a food is, like, showboating. Like, Not if the sauce is... Um, buffalo sauce i i only watch sports for showy displays of arrogance and over-the-top antics i feel like that like respectable just play the game mentality is complete anathema to me i have no interest in that no i've got the complete boring sport fans i like pitchers duels i like like heavy defensive games and football i don't think those are mutually exclusive because i like the same things but i like when the players are also openly trash talking each other on the field or on the court and like you know like when you get those like pitchers duels where like the pitcher mouths something at one of the batters and you can tell it like completely rattles him and angers him and then it he like strikes him out with something high and tight right after that it's like you i need i need a little bit of that swaggy kind of you need those dramatics yeah i like that i'm gonna tell you that i'm striking you out and then strike you out approach to the game no, nah, I, th- I think the best thing you can do is let your let your play speak for itself. Yeah, I, I I just totally disagree. That's why the only sport I really enjoy watching anymore is basketball because I feel like the gameplay has a natural bent toward kind of like showy. Um, not not I don't know that word just has such negative con- connotations. Like there, I wish I could just say flashy and have it have no negative connotations. That's what I like. <laughs> No, I know what you mean. Like basketball does lend itself to kind of like spectacular plays. Spectacular like, is a good, good, good word for it. Yeah, like like feats of like real athletic prowess with like dunking and stuff. Like I, I don't mind that in the context um, of the game itself. It's just that that seems to be that's like the goal now is to like do a dunk that's so like spectacular and so outrageous that it gets on Instagram or whatever. Whatever. I guess I'm I'm an old man. What can I say? What you should say is something about this scene from Everybody Loves Raymond that we're supposed to be discussing. The scene sucks. Yeah. The only thing else I wanted to mention from it was that Ray Romano should never lift his arms. It was really frightening when he, like, (laughs) tries to do a dance. And he, like, he does that thing, like, he won't extend his arms all the way. He keeps them kind of T-Rex style and, like, does weird jazz hands for a second. It was just really, really gross. I've never seen anybody who, like, moves so poorly. He looks like... Remember Vincent D'Onofrio in Men in Black? (laughs) Yeah. When the the alien has, like, inhabited his body and he doesn't know how to move around like a human being? Edgar, what on earth was that? Sugar. I've never seen sugar do that. Give me 
Sugar. In water. Yeah, there's something sick about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so this rolls into the montage. It's just barking dogs again. We're we're on a loop now. I think. It's just they're they're phoning it in. They don't care anymore. Yeah, I mean, just like us. Three or four episodes ago, we had we had birds chirping, we had cats meowing, and like you know, those aren't the most exciting sounds compared to the, the early days. But at least there was some variety. Now it's I think three episodes in a row with the dogs. Yeah, the dog. I mean, we used to have like horns honking. We used to have seals barking. Yeah. Now this is just very this is very pedestrian. It's not giving me any opportunities for drops, which is I feel like my main complaint. Yeah. Do you, do you see like the spectacle? Exactly. This yeah. is the guy just doing his job. This guy, says he just keeps his head down. He's got good fundamentals. <laughs> that's, that's who I like. It's like Bronx Tale. I'm like Robert De Niro, the bus driver. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a good analogy. No, it is. I actually just don't know that movie that well. Oh, it's it's all right. It's overrated. I know that I've seen it, but it, it was a long time ago, and I, I don't know. It was one of those, like, in... In and out movies, I just never really yeah, didn't stick with me. It's okay. It's it's not that great. Um, I'll let that be the final word on Bronx, uh, Bronx Tale. That's it for Bronx Tale. So um, the episode proper begins when Ray is coming in, presumably from work. He's entering the house. Um, the weird thing is that you know you see him out in the cold open at work interviewing an athlete and then in the first scene you see him returning from work but the first scene took place at night and the second scene takes place in the middle of the day so right it's like they they couldn't even track like a, it was a, such a softball just have him come in at night um and then right. there's some continuity with this you know the shoehorned in cold open but they missed that opportunity you know it's, it's, on it's the completely phone, disconnected right? Deborah, Deborah is on the phone because Ray comes in. And he says something like, "Oh, hey, I'm home." And um, oh, what the hell does she say? I should have written it down. It's the joke is you're led to believe like she's she like misses Ray and she says something nice to him, but she says, "I'm not talking to you." Yeah, um, she is very excited though to be on the yes. phone um, with. What we find out soon enough is like a radio psychologist, radio therapist, um, yeah. Doctor Nora, Doctor Nora um, Sarazen. Yeah, Sarazen. Um, a a Sarazen. Who hosts the show? <laughs> yeah. Well, I wrote it down as Sarazen because I was like, "Is that really all they're going for?" Like, <laughs> she's a <laughs> she's an, <laughs> she's a Saracen who dispenses advice because it's like so, the fourteen hundreds. Yeah, it, the, the the name came out of nowhere, but it's almost like that. That's the joke that some some underwriter buried in there for us because the the surface level joke is that her show is called "It's Your Problem," and uh, the slogan is "There's no one to blame but yourself," which um, <laughs> yeah. I, so it's funny because I it's clearly meant to be like a send up of what was what was kind of a radio. Um, fad at the time, right? They're like those. You know, like Frasier was based on a similar um, yeah. person in a similar role, right? And then I think they were just. I remember hearing people on the radio, like doctors who were had like a call-in show for like um, advice of this sort, 
um, family life, marital troubles, all that stuff. Um, but it's it's like it's an inaccurate joke. This like you're the problem. Um, feel bad about yourself mentality. Like I feel like it, it was usually like empowerment coaching dressed up as psychology of like you know you need to tell them you deserve it you need to i don't know it didn't seem like a very accurate well, portrayal of this that's that's not much thing. of a slogan for a radio show no no it just <laughs> felt like it was uh somebody made a joke about this it just struck me as a very phil thing to do make a joke about like some kind of cultural institution based on your guess of how it operates, not on any sort of, like, experience of how it operates. Right. He, he, doesn't, um, he doesn't display any real understanding of what he's sending up. It's just that he knows it's something yeah. that, that exists. And so he's approximating what he thinks it is. Yeah, it's got a very, like, well, I read the headline mentality <laughs> yes. behind it. The scene is kind of weird. I found Patricia Heaton's acting... Um, to be also very repelling and repellent in this scene. I kind of, for some reason, like her overacting was really rubbing me the wrong way. I kind of liked her, like um, her, like how she was like such a supplicant to Doctor Nora. Like it, it was, it was a nice. Um, I thought it was a nice change of pace from Deborah's usual like schoolmarmish demeanor when she deals with Raymond and the kids. Uh, yeah, it it probably was some extraneous element of it that just was like it made me uncomfortable to see her that way but like, the, um, so you like to see her dominating ray because ray comes in he's like he's like ruining the call for her he's like oh yeah what ray's doing during the call is you know patently absurd <laughs> right right I, I don't know it, it it kind of works for me in a certain way though i i kind of liked um <laughs> i like that the well, dynamic I, was reversed can i spoil it you liked this episode I didn't think this episode was that bad, especially by the standards of like the last five or six that we've done. Oh yeah, it's it's been it's, it was the best in a while. I'll give you that. I don't think you. I don't. I don't think I could say that I enjoyed it. But um, there's a couple things in this phone call. So Deborah's trying. You know, she made it on the radio. She's having her problems listened to by Doctor Nora, and Ray is um, incapable of restraint he he has to do a whole a whole series of behaviors that he's never done before presumably just to ruin the call like i can't couldn't figure out why he was doing like any of this the first thing he does uh is go to the counter and start chopping celery oh yeah yeah or was a celery or like a tomato with like the big butcher knife it was confusing because there were tomatoes on the tray as well but he starts chopping celery yeah, because a, t- a tomato would be believable. I could see Ray. No, it wouldn't. I, it's not. It's not about the, the the particular vegetable. It's the idea that he's just going to walk in the door from work and start participating in cooking, doing prep work no, in the kitchen. No, because I could see him like chopping off a slice of tomato as like a snack. I don't think that Ray makes his own snacks, man. I think he. It's not making. It's just cutting off a slice. If he wanted a snack, he would go to his parents. And have his mommy feed him. But he hates his parents. I, I just don't think Ray would ever s- prepare a snack for himself. It has to be in a ready-to-eat container, like an ice cream thing, so, like a carton of ice cream. So even, or it has to be served to him. Even the step of 
The knife is out on the cutting board. The tomato is out on the cutting board. Him cutting a tomato. You think that's too much still for Ray? Yes, I do. I don't see him ever. I mean, that's like saying Ray would never like eat a peanut because he has to peel the shell off. Well, he did cook a whole sauce in the last episode, so I don't have much of a leg to stand yeah. on. But he, I mean, first of all, we're, we're, it's a totally hypothetical thing because he wasn't chopping a tomato. He was chopping celery. That is true. I, I perceived it as a tomato, so this is already a well, um, so false premise. He goes, from the, he goes from the vegetables when the knife is taken away from him to the fridge where he's going to start loudly, I don't know, digging around in the ice box and rattling ice in his glass. So he gets that taken away from him. And then he just picks up a paper bag and starts doing that trick where you pretend to throw something in the air and catch it in the paper bag by snapping your fingers. Yeah, that's I mean that's indefensible. Right? There's no excuse for that. He's just being an antagonist. You know, he was just making noise. There's no, there's just no other description of that. Yes. And the the result of this call is that um oh, so you know, Deborah makes it on the radio, she hears her own voice, and then she promptly gets a call back from Dr. Nora herself saying, I'd like to interview yeah. you for a study I'm doing about, um, well, what Deborah, uh, what she tells Deborah is a vanishing breed, the housewife. Yeah, Ray picks up and he says it's the Saracen and she doesn't believe him, but it, it turns out it is yeah. actually the Saracen. I. What do you take as like, who is the target of that joke? Like when she's like, um, I'm doing a study on a vanishing breed, the housewife. Deborah is thrilled to have been identified and and selected, but the audience laughs. So, like, where where is the joke? Who is it? Fun- What's funny, and who's it funny to? I think the joke is that Deborah, as we've seen, takes up the lion's share of household chores and raising the children, and she has submitted to this traditional lifestyle of a housewife. But as we've also seen, she has a simmering resentment that is barely even veiled at her um, status in life. As as she'll mention later in the episode, and she's mentioned before, uh, she had a job where she was working PR for the Rangers. She calls them just a hockey team this time. So I think we're supposed to get an idea that Deborah is a little bit bitter at her situation, at being a housewife. So I think her saying, Mm -hmm. vanishing breed... The housewife. It's like uh like sticking it to Ray like a reminder, like like yeah, I'm doing all this for you and like you're such a moron. Interesting. Okay, so when the studio audience laughs, they're laughing because like almost the artificial cushiness of Ray's situation is being kind of exposed. Yeah, I think so because I think this that like how why how what how does he get off with expecting the kind of um, treatment that is more associated with like fifties and sixties, not the nineties? Yeah, I think there's a bit of that, and I think like I don't is I think the impre- the impression I got was this was the first time that Ray ever had an inkling that Deborah listened to the Saracen, so this is like. Yeah, he didn't seem to know anything about this, and she's clearly a very big fan. Yeah, a huge fan. I mean, you talked about, like, how, like, when she talks to the Saracen on the phone, she's so, like, excited and, like, sycophantic and obsequious. So it's 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 clearly, like, a yeah. very... Obsequious is the right word. That uh, That's that's the vibe yeah, I was that's getting. A, 
I remember learning that in um, eighth grade vocabulary class. Remember those little orange books that we had? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember them because I still have to use them now for, for my own class. Yeah, those, I mean, those are, uh, those were clutch. Those were a trove. But, um, but no, this, this, this is clearly like a great moment of validation for Deborah, And it's, it's in a sphere that is completely foreign and unknown to Ray. And I think it's a way for her to cope with her own um, dissatisfaction with being a housewife. Okay, so I, I, th- I think what you're saying is valid. I'm not sure if, if I'm completely, if I've been won over yet, because what I was hearing there was more like almost a joke for people who were probably, like the, the young couple at the center of this scene is probably younger than the people who are best suited for this joke. Um, and it was more about, like, the surprise answer after Vanishing Breed was about, like, the sort of crumbling of social norms and the family itself and the, you know, um, like, where have we gone? How do we get here? Like, the um, Deborah's all excited to be something that's... We're, I, I think the audience is laughing at the... Um, identification of the fact that like traditional and by implication good norms and mores are going away and that they are on the side of like what's good and right and should be restored okay so you think it's like a laugh of like satisfaction or relief that they're on the right side of something yeah i i I got a vibe of more like that this whole like radio psychologist deborah's like um sort of obsequious devotion to that kind of advice that all of that was kind of like um to the audience that the that the laugh track conceives of that that would be um laughable in itself um that the joke is really on deborah not on yeah i can kind of see what you're saying because like the other possibility i thought of was that um, it might be a joke just about like pop psychology in general, like all like like the perception mm-hmm. that like radio psychologists or like agony ants or whatever who like write in the paper are, are frauds of a kind, and like anybody who gets like a doctorate from like whatever can write. Like I imagine like being in a bookstore, like a big like Barnes Noble or something like that, and walking past a book that says uh, "The Vanishing Housewife in America" by you know Doctor Saracen. And be like, like, oh, that's that's probably just bullshit. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think the audience is meant to laugh at from the, from that angle. Okay, that that does make sense. Anyway, so um, Deborah is excited that she's going to be featured in this this interview series, this study, um, and so the next day, um, it seems like the next day Deborah is having Dr. Nora over, right, uh, for this interview, and she's preparing. Um, really manically like she's really panicked that the house and the family won't be ready for dr nora and she's the the premise of the scene is that deborah is like kind of falsifying their lives she's putting up she's staging a family so that she can kind of show off to the doctor rather than letting the doctor observe and um analyze the you know that the true status quo at the yeah, own house she wants to impress the saracen with um, her prowess as a mother and a wife. Uh, but then when she gets into the dialogue a little bit, like she also wants it to seem like she's, 
she still has like this professional side and like this uh, sort of liberated side, so to speak, as well. So Deborah is she's this is like a big moment for her to validate her existence. Yeah, and it's it's kind of weird though because it's like the the idea is that she got on this radio show because she has a problematic marriage, right? That's the subject of the show. Um, and in particular, we know that episode is about how she doesn't feel like she's appreciated. Yes. But then when she has the doctor come over, she wants to present an absolutely perfect marriage and family life in, in a well-run household that, like, if that if that were the case, there would be no need to be interviewed about her perspective. Yeah, that that is a discrepancy that I guess didn't occur to Deborah. And that if the source of the Saracen's interest in her was that she had this dysfunctional marriage, um, yeah, it wouldn't things appear unseemly if Deborah is presenting this perfect life? Yeah, she seems like dead set on disguising that all dysfunction, which would you know totally negate the the reason for the doctor to come study her. It should be like remember when um, remember when Deborah and Ray are searching in the dumpster for the. Uh, the ring yeah that's what that's what the saracens should have observed see this is why like as much as you said like this one was a little bit more enjoyable than certain other episodes it still suffers from like so many of like what i've really come to see as like the raymond problems um but let's i i'll say more what i mean like when we talk about when the doctor shows up um so so the doctor arrives and does she get a little a little cheer i think she does does she? I, I don't remember her getting a, a reaction. I think the studio audience reacts in some way. She's not like a guest star. It's not like somebody with a, like a really big profile. Um, it's this woman, this actor, Mary Kay Adams, who yeah. um, I, I just I always check up on these things. It, sa- it seems like her big claim to fame was that she was on the soap opera Guiding Light for like a, a good number of years in the 80s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I I didn't recognize her at all. I thought that I should from like she had an actory vibe, um, but yeah. Then I was kind of disappointed. She'd been on a lot of TV shows and especially this soap opera, but really only like two or three movies. Um, and they looked like some like horror sequels, like you know, um, Halloween Slaughter forty seven type stuff. The second hand that rocks the cradle. <laughs> yeah. She shows up. She seems. I guess. I guess the operating thing here is that she's like more down to earth and easier to be around than you would expect. Yeah, she's she's pretty easygoing. She seems open minded, and it's contrasted with like Deborah wearing her like puke green blazer. Is like uh, yeah, she was in Marie's finest today. <laughs> she was that like pea soup uh, colored blazer she was wearing. But yeah, like she's the layering. She's like she so obviously wants to impress the Saracen, and like she's talking about being a mother and running the house. And I used to work PR for a hockey team. She doesn't explicitly say the Rangers uh, this time. Yeah. Interestingly enough, maybe all the Islanders fans on Long Island got upset. <clears throat> they are babies. But anyway, yeah, she's giving <laughs> she's given like a whole presentation um, about how you know. Raising three kids and make, taking care of the house is, is tough, but we manage, and here's how I do it. And it was, just, you know, very wooden and very artificial as the, as the scene demands. 
Um, and the the joke is that Ray and the kids simply can't be pleasant accessories to Deborah's scene, no matter what they do or say. It is um, like revealing of how bizarre and like dysfunctional they are. Right, right. And then, um, so De- what is it? Deborah has to go uh, to put the twins to bed, which leaves Ray uh, alone with uh, the Saracen. And she finds she yeah. finds Ray funny and charming, and then uh, Frank and Marie bust in. It's a, it's a great yeah. Comedic. Frank and Marie bust in because they saw a big black car in the driveway, <laughs> which uh, yeah. Frank says is usually a sign that the feds are present. Yeah. Have we? I think we've had a, a conspiracy Frank before, haven't we? Yeah, he's he's been around. Um, yeah, I, I'm blanking on like a particular instance. Right. Um, but it reminds me of his, like, um, you know, his shady warehouse deals type stuff. Oh, yeah, like, with Leon. Uh, his rules of the street with <laughs> yeah, Leon. Bu- yeah, uh, buying the, um, what was the seafood he bought from the, the derelict's trunk? <laughs> I think, uh, doesn't Marie just say buying seafood or fish or something? Like something generic? Yeah, I, f- I forget what, but yeah. It was, I, I'll have a note. I'm going to, I'll go back for the note. The trunk of a derelict. Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, it's it's in that it's in that Frank ballpark, but um, the the I think like so like he comes in with that Frank and Marie are like at each other's throats immediately, and um, Frank makes a comment like uh, you wouldn't think you'd need to be on radio with a figure like that <laughs> yes. to the doctor. It was very disgusting, but also um, but yeah, that was a good one. Also, uh, Marie was a fan of uh, the Saracen. Yes, um, it was funny, and and like the way she talks about Deborah too, I thought it was funny. She's like, "Is Deborah finally getting help?" Yeah, what she needs. Well, like I thought that was well done. I feel like it does have the sort of um, the like weird casual sexism of the show. That like part of the joke is just that all of the women are into this. Um. Yeah, yeah, that's. But fair. then, yeah, the the joke that Murray thinks Doctor Nora is here to treat Deborah, well, that was fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like that. But then, this is my frustration all the time, and I, it's so it's so common. I'm sure it's boring to listen to me speak about it, but the this Doctor scene is it's over and done in like all of three and a half minutes, and then the entire episode is about scrutinizing what had happened and the fallout from this, rather than like allowing anything to actually happen. Like with the doctor, like include this character in the action in any way. Um, it's just like she yeah. shows up, the family comes over, they each do their, um, you know, socially unacceptable thing, and then Ray and Deborah have a protracted argument that ends in some kind of like uneasy resolution. And it, it's so formulaic at this point. It's true. Like the protracted argument part, it, it always takes place in bed when the day is done. Yeah. And it's. There, it's never satisfying at all. It's always. I feel like they're. It's so like hamstrung by the idea of um, like this is what married couples do. This is what family life is. You have conversations yeah. in bed and don't go to bed angry, like that kind of thing. Like it cleaves so much to that like really traditionalist narrative that it does. Um, it prevents the show from uh, being really comedically effective because if they sat on the scene with the doctor for a couple more minutes, like you're saying, they might've been able to mine something more interesting out of it. Yeah. Or just allow something to happen. There's never like a happening, like that something occurs that 
changes the direction of the scene and like forces characters to react. There's just comments. People just make comments. And like usually there's like a neutral third party to sort of sit and um you know be scandalized by the behavior of the Barones. Um be it yeah. Deborah's family, be it um the woman with the dog, be it, you know, this doctor, but like they never are actually involved in any sort of occurrence that then has to, you know, that then has consequences that lead to other scenes. There's just um, a presence from outside no, the family I, creates an argument that the rest of the episode seeks to resolve and, and usually fails to resolve. No, I, I think you're pretty dead on. Like, the Barones do the exact same thing every time. Yeah. We know what they're going to do. There might be slight variations on... You know, Robert's neurotic and crazy. Frank is a disgusting bore. Marie is very uh, sanctimonious and vain. Mm. And and then that's it. It's like you said. Like they, there's sometimes they bring in a third party for them to play off of to highlight how absurd it is. But it is. It's the same thing every time. The only thing we get here that's outside of that, um, the particular way they play that that thing that that schema here is that robert's um obsessive compulsive disorder um particularly the way he eats is it comes back in full force as if we had never abandoned it for 10 episodes here it is as if it was there all along and um oh yeah the you know he touches to the, the chips chin, yeah. to his chin yeah um and this this fascinates the doctor yeah she's um yeah it's almost like she found um like a lost tribe or something in like the Amazon. <laughs> so it's like her yeah. that was her demeanor. She's like an anthropologist who first came upon some uncontacted people. Well I was hoping that she would like then, you know, talk about them on the next day's program or something and there would be like like I said, something that would happen as a result of this scene, but nothing ever does. Yeah, see like that that would have made sense and then the Barones could be scandalized and then they could yeah. like there could be a there could be a funny scene of Frank calling into the Saracen show and commenting on her figure once again. Oh, now that would be good. I'd you see. Imagine like they're yeah. Deborah and Ray are listening to the next day's broadcast in the kitchen, and at some point Frank's voice breaks in, like caller number one, you're on, and it's Frank, and he's got a bone to pick with Doctor Nora. Yeah, like that would be good. Like cut out their you know stupid argument in bed and they try to run over to the other house while frank's still on the phone to stop it mid-call yeah like frank's in the house like they hear chewing on the line and ray recognizes the snack that he usually (laughs) eats so he has to run like we've already written a better second half of the episode yeah because okay so this this does lead to the break and the second half of the episode um begins with you know deborah in bed really sad she's eating some ice cream i think it kind of looked like like cream of potato soup. It wasn't like the most appetizing looking bowl of ice cream. It was like her blazer. Yeah, it had a kind of um, like old fashioned stew. <laughs> Tepper's eating vibe. Gruel. She's eating Oliver Twist's meal. Yeah. That's... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, that would make Ray's behavior actually funny afterward. But um, her, her, she's upset um, because she doesn't think. She, she's upset that the Dr. Nora was more interested in all of the Barones than in her. You know, she was supposed to be the subject of this visit, and it turned into a Barone fest. Um, and this 
the fear that this puts in her is that she is boring, that she's not an interesting person. Yeah, and um, Ray is not up to the task of comforting her because he never he never is. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, this is another like um, this is another Raymond scene. Yeah, go describe what Ray is doing. Yeah, I, I don't even fuck. I I have to I have to admit I I was very lax with my note taking uh, for this episode. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really I'll help you out. Um, so Ray is like just really distracted, um, and he's distracted by like the dregs of ice cream in oh, Deborah's yeah. bowl, which he like takes and then starts lapping up. You know, while she's she's on the verge of tears, she's having like a serious existential crisis about whether or not she has a personality, and Ray. Um, can't be bothered to pay attention. He has absolutely no interest in what Deborah's saying, and he starts like lapping up the leftover ice cream straight from the bowl. Um, and you know, so while he does that, the audience is cracking up. Um, and it's like this has to be like what the fourth or fifth scene where Deborah is almost you know is breaking down, and the audience is laughing because of what Ray's doing. Yeah, in the background. right. Like Ray is callous or whatever, and that's that's like the source of the comedy. Yeah, the the comedy is like Ray can't pay like he has an attention disorder and that's funny to everybody <laughs> for some reason. He's one of those barone freaks. <laughs> yeah. But he um I so there's this question at the heart of the episode that um they have a cutesy little answer for it at the end, but is Deborah boring does she have a personality of that's of any like interest uh, we've talked about it before her personality seems to exist only to antagonize ray and to get ray into trouble or uh, for things yeah so she really hasn't demonstrated that much of a personality like you, you can't identify something that deborah enjoys or that she's particularly interested in she just she just exists purely as a device uh, to antagonize Ray and sort of um, be like the upsetting and unpleasant reality for Ray's Peter Pan world. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think, like, I would agree that Deborah is like, like I, I think a victim of the show's like inherent casual sexism that that the women characters are designed as ballast for the male characters to do things off of but um they're just like in a permanent state of annoyance and they can only be placated for short periods by gifts or you know uh certain acts of um what's the word whatever yeah. uh subservience i can't think of it but you know exactly what i mean they like no i know what you mean because they, they they like they define the boundaries of the episode and like it's about like they 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 stand on the place of that boundary and you watch the the male characters cross those boundaries and transgress and that's what's funny but like you need a marker to show that they've actually broken some kind of rule cuz like most of the time what they're doing is like not that like bad not from a moral standpoint or even from a social standpoint but like so you need this character to like stand there and be a marker of like you know, some kind of limit that, like, if you go past this, you will have done wrong, and now we can make this about something else. And so it's like, it's yeah, it's like an empty signifying edge of the show. But do you think there are people who 
just are boring and don't have any personality. Is that possible? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I'd say most people are boring and don't have a personality. Do you don't think so? Like the, All the people who seem that way, you think that if you really got into their consciousness and inhabited it, it would be really plain and boring and dull? That there's not like some hidden world down there that we're just not privy to from the outside? I mean, you want to believe that everybody has like a, a rich inner life and there are innumerable passions and emotions that have shaped them. Um, but I think most people lack the capacity for self-reflection that would make them an interesting person. I think most people just take their life as a series of events and uh, they consume what is presented to them in an uncritical manner. I know I sound like I, I should take off my fedora for this and <laughs> maybe uh, shave my neck beard. Shave that neck beard. Picture a hot dog bun and, and throw all the stars, the hundreds of stars that there are in the universe into a, pa- into a bag and put the universe into a bag and you all of a sudden, they become... Um... I realize it's not incredibly pretentious, but I, I don't... I... No, I, I backed you into that. But I, I, I do think that's true deep down. I think most people are kind of boring. I always want to know, like, are the, are the people who I think of as boring people, are they really, are they boring to themselves, basically? I think most, I think a lot of people take comfort in the fact that they enjoy things that uh, a majority of other people enjoy. I think more, most people are interested in being, um, quote unquote, normal and taking comfort in that rather than, like, I think people, I think a lot of people think of themselves as interesting, but the traits that they think of as, as interesting are often rather mundane or commonplace. Hmm. So, but so that would that would be a different answer to my question because then you'd be saying that those people are interesting to themselves. Oh, at to, least the to themselves part. And see, that's interesting because I think a lot of people are uh, very vain and kind of wrapped up in themselves and their image. So hmm. I guess. I guess people um, maybe aren't interesting to me, but I guess I, it'd be hard to think of somebody who isn't interesting to themselves. I'm trying to think of like what public figure is the most boring, like has achieved the most success, like cultural sat- saturation. Everybody knows them, is interested in them, but that that person on the inside to themselves is really, really dull. I would think um, it's a dated reference, but like Larry King. <laughs> like I, I don't think there's anything. There's nothing going on in there. I don't think there's anything at the center of Larry King, because even like his interview style, he's just like, he's an idiot. Like he doesn't know anything <laughs> about anybody he interviews. He has no opinions. Larry, you're being inappropriate. I'm what? not going to talk about. I'm asking a question. You're, you're identifying a whole other axis of this thing that if someone is stupid enough, their interesting level to themselves probably goes up because it takes less to be interesting. Well, yeah, it's, I guess it's kind of like a version of like the Dunning-Kruger effect, uh, which is like um, like people who are the most stupid or inept think themselves as very good at things, whereas people who are smart and competent will often think themselves mm-hmm. as being inadequate at certain things. Uh, so... Um, so this is a podcast that uh, the big reveal, now that we're reaching the end of the season, is that uh, it's actually about Levian Satanism, and yes. uh, we hope that you've seen, uh, seen the light, Lucifer's light at this point. I love his goatee. <laughs> Didn't he had a great goatee.
He's, yeah, see, he's, he's, he comes up in those like like gentleman's guide to beard grooming charts. <laughs> see, see now, a- Anton Lavey, he was interesting, and he was probably interesting <laughs> to himself too. So I I didn't I didn't take many uh, notes other than Deborah cries and Ray licks ice cream, um, boorishly. Um, I guess the next day, Deborah's in the kitchen going about her business when Frank and Marie and eventually Robert all come over at the same time to uh, put on this show for Deborah, where they find things to say that she does uniquely or um, in a quirky way and. Uh, you know, it's clear from the get-go that Ray has put them up to this. He wants them to tell Deborah she's interesting. See, this this was the scene I liked. I actually, I, I liked I was. This is the best scene in the episode. This is one of the best scenes in the series so far. Yeah, I could go that far. Yeah, like the three of them punch it up like really well. Especially Robert. Yeah, oh, s- socks while you're wearing slippers. <laughs> Very bold. <laughs> I mean, he, his his facial expressions and the way he's also looking around to see if he's doing it right, I, I thought were pretty well acted. Right, and it's also um, we're we're spared and the fact that he's like he's like he's like shrugging like I've got nothing to work with here. <laughs> like this is the best I can do. Right, and I, I was also very happy too because we we were spared a scene of, you know, Ray going over to his parents' house, you know, going in through the kitchen door, and um, yes. Like, like, or like in another episode, Ray would go and like have a ginger ale at his parents' house, and his mom would want him mm-hmm. uh, to eat something, and he'd say like, "Oh, you know, Deb's, you know, she thinks she's boring. If you could be nice to like, that would be like a four minute scene. Yeah, exactly. And we were spared. You're that. right. That it's one of the least formulaic elements of this episode is that they cut that scene, which is in like every other episode. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I was very yeah, pleased. So this is the scene where the Barones tell deborah she's weird but deborah sees through it you know she i always thought like she's she's like very unfeeling and condescending in this scene when she's like thanks a lot but it's pretty transparent um and then frank tries to explain that they came you know with good intentions they want her to feel better and that she lacks flair that's his word for yeah he does like situation He has that weird little pinky motion that he's done before, too. Yeah. Kind of like that he brought that back. Was this pre-Office Space? Office Space is like 99? Yeah. Yeah, so this is like a year okay. and a half, two years before. Because I feel like that's the only thing I associate with Flair at this point. Like, it oh. really overwrote all other implications. Oh. oh, yeah, the pieces of Flair. Classic scene. We need to talk about your Flair. Really? I, I have 15 pieces on I, uh, well, okay, 15 is the minimum. It is, it's one of those scenes that, like, um, it got broed out, you know? There's no, there's nothing, it's, it's been completely hollowed out by, like, quote, movie quote bros. A lot of, a lot of aspects of that movie, because that movie is so funny and so good, but even, like, like, the way mm-hmm. Lumberg talks, like, that, that's been broed out big time. The yeah. damn, it feels good to be a gangster, that, that stuff, I feel like, has been... I th- that scene has like the 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 um, copier smashing. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster scene. It's like it, that. Um, that was a Pandora's box scene that unleashed a lot of terrible shit into the culture. Yes, it did. Like, like it's a great. Um, it's so funny the first time you see it, and in the context of the movie, 
but no, because it is it's so brilliant because like they set up within like the first ten minutes that um, uh, Michael Bolton hates the copier and stuff that has this vendetta yeah. against it. Uh, so like they like they plant the seed and then you know it it comes back in the end. Uh, but what what a lot of other filmmakers took from it it was just like uh, white nerdy office workers doing things to a gangster rap song and like that's the point yeah. of the scene without any sort of contextualization in the movie at all. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those things that, like, it it probably occurs to these directors and whatever as a sort of, like, marriage of cultures, like, not appropriative because it's, like, you know, makes use of, like, rap or hip-hop or whatever, but that is, like, in effect, really, like, um, draws the lines even more clearly between those two things that, like... It's you know it's it's used as like outsider music right. like the the juxtaposition is the joke um, that these people here could have anything to do with that culture over there is what's funny. Yeah, that's that's precisely right. It's it's not like um, it's not integration if the integration is predicated upon look at how ridiculous it is that these two things would coexist. Then it like led to so so many copycat scenes and like. The whole aesthetic of, um, you know, kind of like white collar, white culture, whatever, married to, um, like aggressive rap, like it just it's it's so it's still common. It's like it never really left, yeah. and I think you can trace it back to that. Yeah, it's still in like fast food commercials and stuff like everywhere. Yeah, advertising really got interested in that. Yeah, big time. Even it's, more it's, than like movies and TV. Because I think I think you hit on something that's um, uh, very true, in that it's it's kind of a way to superficially merge two cultures together, um, like uh, white collar, uh, predominantly white culture, and what is sometimes termed uh, "quote unquote" like urban culture. So you so yeah, people who think of it can kid themselves that they're being very progressive and forward thinking. But also, like you said, it's predicated upon this idea that uh, even the two of them being together is so absurd and ludicrous that it's hollow and it totally misses the point. Yeah, they're just they're just clowning. Yeah. But uh, as speaking of segues, Deborah is clowning it up in this scene. Oh yeah, she by, loses it. Um, right. So when her her frustration reaches its peak, um, she starts doing impressions of all the Barones to show. Um, what each of their quirks and weirdnesses are, the kind of, the things that she lacks. So she goes from Barone to Barone doing impressions. Um, I think it starts with Marie critiquing, like, her fridge and the items in the pantry. Yeah. Then it goes to Frank. Uh, what is it about Frank that she highlights? Oh, um, d- does she bring up when he commented on the Saracen's figure? She does. Right? I don't think – does she? She does, and like so, something else about him, like you know, being disgusting. Oh no, when he um. Oh no, she does. She imitates that thing he does. The like do 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 do. I can't hear you. Yes, yes. Which he did. Um. Whatever. Um. And then she moves on to Robert <laughs> and his like, you know, victimized. What was me? Um. Everybody loves Raymond thing, and and this is. I felt like. It was important we talk about this part because she does start chanting "Everybody loves Raymond" the phrase at one point. <laughs> yes, she does. Just in case we forgot um, what show we were watching. 
it, it's not even in such a like I, I just started watching it and that was the moment when I really started to sympathize with Deborah that I'm like trapped in this like everybody loves Raymond <laughs> chant now that I can't get out of you th- so you think Deborah has gained like awareness that she's a character in a sitcom and like now you can <laughs> yeah, suffer exactly. with her it'd be interesting if like a primetime sitcom character gains awareness that they were a sitcom character in the middle of like the show did that ever happen? Like, not not in like a more recent show that's like you know where everybody is trying to have a slightly postmodern fourth wall breaking element to it. But like in the sitcom heyday, was there ever a a scene like that? I I I could very easily see there being like a one off scene where a character says something to the camera, and then of course there's a phenomenon of like very special episodes where like the characters will like turn and talk and be like, we're talking about drug addiction today or something like that. And then go on with the show. But that, that's something a bit different. There's probably something like that where they like the actors emerge partway through to, to shift the focus. Yeah. Um, well, cop, well, cop rock. There's a, there's a remember cop rock. All the, did they do? Oh, at the ends, when they all sing the song, did Cop Rock end with like a? Yeah, the, they sing like a PSA song at the end, right? About how they're going off the air. or something? Yeah, they're all, it's like they sang a song that they're all pissed off that they got canceled, and that they're gonna rise up again or something. We should have done a Cop Rock oh podcast. Oh my god! <laughs> I can't believe they canceled us. Yeah, no. Only got to sing one song. It reminded me, there's a um, like a George Saunders story too about like um, a character on a sitcom that realizes that's their position, and um, I think it's like Brad Corrigan, American or something. Like it's Brad something American. It's a pretty good story. Br- Brad Garrett. <laughs> Brad Garrett, American. The story by George Saunders. <laughs> yes. Uh, so eventually, you know, Deborah does Robert, and he she just starts screaming everybody loves raymond while she literally smashes potato chips against her chin they're flying yes. all over the scene yes yeah, uh, probably the best physical acting yeah some of some of that here. gross out par that you like she really made a mess big mess um so the next scene after the after this you know the audience laughs hems and uh, they start laughing and as usual deborah's pain is our pleasure <laughs> and um we transition to the bed at night because, you know, where else could the episode go? Of course. But it's, um... um it's cooled down at this point. They've, they've cooled off. And she says, uh, I'll go over and I'll apologize tomorrow for the show. But I, I guess we should point out the, um... The Brones were enjoying Zebra's send-up of them. Although I thought it was a good touch when she... Oh, right. When she, when she first started making fun of Marie, uh, Marie was the only one who took offense. But when she moves on to Frank and Robert, like, they, they both thought it was funny. And so the, the whole point of this scene is that, you know, um, Ray's like, no, it was great that you, you know, made fun of them and stuff. And, uh, you know, you'd, you'd have to be yeah. crazy to uh, marry him to the Barones and whatever else. Right. That's his solution. That's the way he weasels out of this one is rather than come up with anything at all about Deborah's personality. He just comes up with like, well, you chose to be part of this family, which is crazy. So that means you're crazy like us. Right. And then, obviously, that um, satiates Deborah because the stinger scene, uh, it's obviously them uh, post-coitus in bed again. <laughs> and, 
I, it's weird. I, I went back and forth on whether or not that was really the implication. I don't know. They seemed uh, pretty content. But that wouldn't, you would think, be Deborah's reaction to having had sex with Ray. You think she'd be, like, really dissatisfied? Yeah, I think she'd... You think it'd be, like, saving Silverman when um, she gives him the magazine <laughs> and the loop <laughs> and turns over? Yeah, that that is really what I imagine is the situation here. Uh, it's what the show has trained me to believe it is, you know? I've gone on and on about the, the casual sexism of the show. I feel like this is the result that I assume automatically that, that Deborah must simply put up with this. It's true. It would it would make in the the framework they presented. You don't you don't think Deborah would enjoy sex, but you know Deborah yeah. has agency. If they want to remind us. <laughs> so I for the stinger scene, I have like written stinger same night, and then I didn't make any notes, so I actually don't remember what happens. Oh, so they've you know they've uh, just had relations, and so Ray's like. He's like, oh, you never made fun of me. And so then she does, like, Ray's voice. Like, just as badly oh, as right. I have done it throughout the course of this um, entire run of episodes. And uh, he, yeah. gets, like, a, he gets a I little mean, it's, upset But it's like a perfectly it. good impression, like, of Ray. It's one of the weirder elements of the show that they do... Like, they can do an impression of Ray on the show that totally undermines the quality of the show. <laughs> or like, or it should undermine it. Like the fact that he's so easily parodied um, and reduced to like three or four groans and moans. Like, <laughs> why does that not also sink the show? He he is one of like the easier voices to do of anybody I've ever seen. It's it's very low effort, and everybody knows it right away. Yeah, I don't know, but like you would think. It was a little while. It was a couple of years before Seinfeld started joking about the tics and, like, um, you know, mannerisms of the characters. Because I feel like if you do it too early, you're, you're like, pointing out the shortcuts and the seams of the writing and the, the, the premise that, like... It's true. It's a little early to do this. It's true. You have to build a foundation. You have to establish that you can be... Um, a good and competent show that can stand on its own merits before you subvert what you're doing. If you subvert what you're doing while you're starting it and building it, it's just going to be shit, which we've seen. Yeah. Which is, show. I mean, like, I, I, th- I do think it's, it, it's not that all things are um, kind of like institutionalized on this show, but this is one that like, they, they, Anytime they do any sort of, like, human scene where someone is having an emotional response to others, they also have to joke about it in the same scene. Like, they never really attempt any kind of emotional um, kind of, like, power or frisson. It's just, like, the fact that people get upset is just opportunities for other jokes. Um, Yeah, and even when they go for, like, um, tenderness, it's set up just to be... um, Subverted right away, like when Robert is singing to uh, one of the twins that time, or oh God, when yeah. uh, Frank is a shitty writer and he and Ray have like the heart to heart. Like it's just set up for like another like shit joke. Uh, um, well, rather than comment at length about um, sort of like 
character, you know, like overarching characteristics of the show. Let's save some of that for our finale episode, which should yeah. be um, should be putting that together pretty shortly. Uh, and and the plan is to have the two guests that we had on earlier this season back again um, for a little bit of discussion. Um, you know, a retrospective, end of season one, um, and an yeah. opportunity for us to talk about some of the the highs and lows of of the show. Well, I mean, I guess well, like the lows and and the lows of the show yeah. and the highs and lows of the podcast. Mostly lows, mostly lows. Um, yeah, we'll do some you know top five worst this, top five worst that. Um, but there's, you know, it, it takes us about ten days, almost two weeks to get another one of these things together. In that time, if you, you the listeners, have um, ideas or questions or topics that you would want covered in what what will probably be the last episode for a little while, I I I, I don't know about you. I'm not gonna put you. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not back you into the corner here, but I think we'll get around to season two. I think so. I'm, I mean, I'm a little burnt out right now, but I think we'll come back to it. I'm burnt out from a podcast I do every ten days. It's oh, it's rough. Yeah, it's it's really the it's the it's the labor of watching the show that precedes the podcast. This part I really fine. should be compensated for what I've been doing. Um, yeah, so that maybe that will be a stipulation of season two if we can get the Patreon know. running. <laughs> oh God, can you imagine? No, I really can't. But yeah, any anything uh, suggestions? Anything? Uh, Mustloveraymonds at gmail dot com, and we did we we had a couple right. people write in after last episode. Oh yeah, yeah, our inbox uh, overfloweth this yeah. week. We had uh, Steely. Well, Steely Ray wrote in. Uh, he wanted to thank us for uh, raising awareness as we were talking about about um, his disease where he shits his pants indiscriminately. <laughs> but um, we also had an email. Um, from somebody telling me I sounded like Joey from Full House, who was played by uh, Dave Coulier. And it's funny because right. he and I have a lot in common uh, because... You both dated Alanis Morris. Well, I was I, I didn't want to announce I I am publicly ending my relationship with Alanis Morissette. Um, it was good. Um, you know, we... It's COVID, so we we had to sneak into a theater, and she. Uh, <laughs> you ought to know better than that. I ought to know. Well, <laughs> it's my cross to bear that uh, you gave to me. But yeah, I guess anything I, uh, else in common with Dave? I mean, you guys both do the puppets thing, right? Puppet things. I've, we've both spent a lot of time with Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen. Yeah, <laughs> you've both uh, both had your hands up. Uh, the asses of various woodland creatures. His were uh, made of fabric. Yours were not. Mine were living and <laughs> raw, <laughs> unconsensual, <laughs> raw, um, <and> living. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I to be honest, I don't hear it. I'm going to be totally honest. I don't hear Dave Coulier in your voice. Well, I, you know, speaking of woodland creatures, I mentioned before we have a lot of we have a lot of weasels and rats who like to try to undermine the good work we're doing here so i'm just i'm just gonna do me as they say do you as dave coulier doing a voice for a puppet who is dating alanis morissette so i'm gonna do an impression of somebody 
in a ventriloquist act, making his puppet do an impression of myself. I think that's the only way to get at the truth, you know? I, you know, I think you're right. That's what modern puppetry is all about, getting at the truth. I, I went to a wedding, and um, they had a comedian during, like, the like the, uh, the dinner hour. No way. No way. Yeah, I swear. And um, <laughs> the key brought in a puppet. You went to a wedding where there was a puppet show? <laughs> yeah, a ventriloquist act, yeah. Well, okay, I don't want to immediately shit on it because I'm sure... I don't know. Was it good? What do you think? <laughs> don't make me be the one. Well, um, well, remember we saw Duncan Trussell, though, and he brought out the puppet? He and did. That was, that was really a great funny. puppet uh, yeah. puppet bit. Uh, it, I think it was just like a Barbie that was possessed by Satan by the end of it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. That was pretty um, good. Yeah. Anyway, we um, we don't have much else for today because we're just going to do the one episode, but... Um, the next one will be a big one. We're saving up time. Uh, don't be surprised if it's well over two hours. And um, the last thing I think we can go out on is that uh, I made reference to the, the phrase, the hand that rocks the cradle, and I said it's a well-known phrase. Yes. It's not like necessary. Uh, I think I should correct that a little bit. I wasn't like wrong, but it's got a weird history. It comes from o. Henry? a poem. It does not come from O. Henry. It comes from a poem from like the 1860s called The the Hand That Rocks the Cradle is the Hand That Rules the World. That's like a celebration of motherhood. Oh, perfect for Raymond. Yeah, I mean, it didn't have – like I still then tried to like apply the full sense of it to the dog situation, that the dog should essentially be running the house and running – you know the world of the show but that wasn't really the yeah case. I mean, maybe if we were talking about marmaduke or something like that <laughs> we're gonna do a uh, panel by panel marmaduke recap podcast after this <laughs> yeah, what, 70 years of marmaduke <laughs> was there a marmaduke animated show at any point i don't think so i know there was a movie i, th- I think owen wilson oh played, you're right he played like the hapless owner or did he, he do the voice of Marmaduke? He wasn't Marmaduke itself? Yeah, maybe he was. I, I can't think now. Because wasn't he in was the... Was he both? Um, was he what, both? What was that like really saccharine, maudlin movie about the dog? That was... Bi- uh, uh, Marley and Me. Yeah, because he, he was in that, right? Uh, I think... Honestly, I think it rhymes with you, me, and Dupree, and I just assume it's all the same. <laughs> I, I, mean, I don't know. It's too bad every movie can't be you, me, and Dupree. You, Marley, me, and Dupree. You, Marley, me, <laughs> Dave Cooley. Myself, and Irene. Irene and uh, Master Splinter. Goddamn, I'm ending this. Oh, and, and oh, Henry. That, that's enough. Um, all, right. all right, so we'll be back in a little bit with the season finale. The episode uh, is called Why Are We Here? So it seems like it'll be a good opportunity to uh, ask ourselves the tough questions and Uh, possibly compensate you, the listeners, for all the time you've wasted on this. Uh, But in the meantime, thanks for listening. Um, We've got some new countries on the board, so um, excited to have penetrated even more of Europe in the last two weeks. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's it. All right. All right. All right.